Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. I am again here just for an introduction. <laughs> and I really appreciate that. It's, I hate being in the studio alone. I know. I, I am here to keep you company. It's so lonely and cold, except for our fearless program director, Alan Minsky, who, who is keeps, always me, here. keeps me warm from the other side of the glass. So today we have a conversation with Martin Duberman, the very legendary, well-known historian and writer about gay politics and culture in the United States about his latest book, Has the Gay Movement Failed?, which is a study of the evolution of gay political aspirations and activism from the post-Stonewall period to the present. This was a conversation just between me and Martin. This, in many ways, was the kind of interview that I just love doing because it's both the sort of stuff that I write about a lot and the research that I do. So it was great to actually talk to Martin because I've been a fan of his for a long time, but also because it gave me a way to really sit down and think with somebody who knows far more than me, has been doing this for far longer than I have, about some of the misgivings many of us in the LGBTQ community have about where we are politically right now. And I think that Martin is able to really talk about the nuance of those kind of liberation era and immediate post-Stonewall era aspirations for a kind of radical change in culture that gay life and progressivism could bring about, and then kind of where we are right now at this moment in history and when it seems like marriage and certain other things that aren't quite as radical seem to dominate that kind of political landscape. So that was, it was deeply fun for me. Can I ask you, did you go into reading the book with a certain answer in mind to the main question that Duberman poses? To be honest with you, I think that, I mean, yes, I think actually the way, the way that that title is phrased has the gay movement failed. Whenever anybody says the gay movement, academics, I think, would mostly be thinking about that immediate post-Stonewall gay liberation front era, given that that's the context in which you're reading it. I think that your immediate response would be, yes, it has failed. Judging by the metrics of that kind of early gay liberation rhetoric and political thinking, for sure. I do think that we see, particularly in a lot of movements and politics from queers of color and queer activists of color, I think we see the renewal of a lot of those interests like intersectionality and really thinking much more broadly about rights and legal initiatives. So I think there is hope, but I think that, yeah, I probably entered into the book being like, okay, we're going to now learn how all the ideals that we used to have, we've walked away from. Okay, let's get into this conversation between you and Martin. Duberman. All right, let's do it. I'm excited to be speaking with Martin Duberman in the studio today. Martin is the Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at CUNY, where he founded the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies. He is also the renowned author of numerous volumes on gay history, culture, politics, and personalities. He's here today to talk about his latest book, Has the Gay Movement Failed?, which assesses the political goals of the immediate post-Stonewall American gay movement and compares them with the rather tepid steps we've taken towards realizing those goals in the present. Welcome to the show, Martin. It's an honor to speak with you. Well, thanks very much. Glad to be here. 
Okay, so let's just jump right in and start with the title of the book, Has the Gay Movement Failed? So first, let's break that apart in two ways. One, please tell our listeners what was the quote-unquote gay movement. And then part two, how do you see it failing in the political and social spheres of the new millennium? Well, that means I have to talk for at least a half hour. Yeah, I know. Uh, (laughs) Never ask a historian a broad question. What I do in the beginning of the book is examine the Gay Liberation Front, Mm -hmm. GLF, which emerged in the years immediately following the Stonewall riots. I read through a lot of the material from that period, felt a great deal of kinship with the ideas and the actions. It was broadly radical, and it was not single issue. That is, although it demanded all civil rights for what we then called LGB people, Mm -hmm. but it also expressed concern and followed through with action in regard to issues relating to race and gender. That GLF remained essentially, you know, a middle-class white male movement, but it did attempt outreach. And certainly it spoke out vigorously against sexism and racism. I go from that in the book to examining what's going on today with the movement and why I think it's lost, it's obviously lost, that radical cutting edge and has settled into a movement which essentially declares that we are just folks. We are exactly like mainstream Americans in our hopes and dreams and aspirations, except for this, you know, slight, really very unimportant matter of our sexual attraction and love interest uh, tends to go toward people of the same gender. Given that shift in direction, and of course the two items that have come to represent that view uh, in the last 15 or 20 years are the right to marry officially and also the right to serve openly in the military. And the radical agenda which had been set by GLF was drastically narrowed down. Mm with the result that a lot of LGBTQ people today, certainly the ones I know who self-define as left-leaning or as radical, they feel all but completely disaffiliated from the movement. It no longer represents that broad gauge of interests and commitments which it had in the post-Stonewall era. Okay. I think that most listeners will understand these kind of slippages. But one of the things that I guess I often struggle with, I completely agree that it's like, as a student of gay history myself, I do see that we had this kind of landmark moment in the kind of late 60s, early 70s. And I'm also... Nostalgic is not the right word, but I guess I have a longing for the kind of radical politics that attended that era and also the kind of act up era from the mid-1980s into the 1990s. But there's other, I feel 
in many ways, Martin, that it's like I'm also complicit. I've told people on the show that I am married and I had a great deal of misgivings about getting married, not about being with my partner, Dan, who I've been with now for almost 13, lucky 13 years, but, you know, just feeling that this was a compromise of my goals, I some of my political beliefs. I mean, in many ways, I grew up reading a lot of the people that you cite. These would be people like Michael Warner, Lauren Berlant, Lee Edelman, Leo Bersani, all those thinkers who were giving us great ways in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s of thinking about queerness and what it meant as a kind of political imperative and challenge. At the same time, I ended up getting married because I wanted certain protections, even if I hate the fact that only married people in this unjust society get those protections. And this would always be driven home for me, literally, when I would be driving at home in Kentucky with my partner and then would think, if we get in an accident, I may or may not be able to see him in the hospital. Or even though our families get along really, really well, Who knows if I died or he died, like somebody would squabble over like what things I would want to go to him or vice versa. So there were those kind of very practical matters. And that's how my relationship is. At the same time, this idea that you're talking about with regard to normalization, right, this kind of we're just like everyone else. I also really hated marriage for that sort of thing. Like one of the jokes that I tell, and my mom would understand this, is that it's like I didn't want by getting married for my mom to feel she somehow knew something about my relationship with my partner, right? Which I see as actually quite different, much more, as you say in the book, egalitarian, culturally different, all kinds of things. So how do you, you know, we were talking before the show that you also recently got married and both of us got married in the DMV-like setting of City Hall, New York. So kind of how do you navigate the ways in which the world and its limitations also get shaped for people that still have that longing and passion and desire for radical leftist politics in the present? It remains troubling. I mean, the fact that I got married... I certainly have friends who are at least as left as I am who have insistently not gotten married and consider it, you know, something of a betrayal. What can I tell you other than that, you know, being human, we all are faced with various contradictions in our feelings and our views. I'm more than 20 years older than my partner. I'm also, you know, getting on in years. I felt the need to protect him in terms of estate taxes and all the rest of it. At the same time, there's no question, I think, but that the fact that some of us get married does discriminate against people who choose not to get married or against people who either engage in, you know, serial relationships or choose the life of being single, which are perfectly valid choices. And, you know, there are so many ways in which marriage confers benefits on those who join the institution that there's no question but that it discriminates those who choose not to. Yeah, absolutely. In a related way, I wanted to talk about there's a 
A thing that you say in the book, which does focus, at least for the first half, a lot on the GLF and the GAA, the Gay Activists Alliance. And I love reading those histories because even though I am familiar with much of it, I always feel that I'm learning something different and learning a lot in the kind of difficult negotiations and ways of navigating their political moment that members of those various institutions had to go through. But there's a moment when you talk about how the fact that the GLF and the GAA, who for students of gay history seem like enormous monolithic mass cultural institutions, were in fact just a tiny fraction of the gay community during the 1970s. So one thing that I'm wondering, and this is against my very deeply hold commitment to queer utopianism, is that there may in fact be a potentially more mainstream and even conservative consensus of aspirations amongst queer people that maybe has also shaped the kind of tepid response to the 1970s goals in the present. I think that's dead on, and I think it's a critical point. There are people on the left who feel that, you know, somehow this has all been a plot by middle and upper class white men to seize the movement and to shift the agenda. But alas, I think that the human rights campaign, for example, which is our largest national organization, I think the human rights campaign does in fact represent the agenda that the large majority of gay people want. Certainly they support the human rights campaign. I mean, its annual budget is beyond belief for somebody, you know, who was part of the founding of the Gay Task Force when we could barely afford a skeleton staff. Last I heard, the human rights campaign had an annual budget of something like $20 million, which is absolutely staggering. You're quite right when you say GLF and GAA, uh, far from being grand enterprises, in fact, was staffed. There was no staff. I mean, the organizations were essentially, well, especially GLF, was essentially anarchistic that is anti-authority and against traditional structures of every kind, including leadership structures. Now, do you think that was a challenge for those organizations, that kind of more leftist, anarchist organization, in terms of allowing those things to be durable over the decades? Allowing what? Sorry, allowing them to maintain themselves. Like, was the anarchic organization of them an impediment to their durability as kind of political movements and organizations? I think that's right. GLF, in fact, only lasted about three years. Currently, I happen to be, because of something I'm working on, I'm reading the early literature of the second wave of feminism, And the pattern is very similar. I've been sort of shocked at how analogous, even down to being in the same years, I mean, essentially 1969 to 1973, those years were a high watermark, not only for the radical gay movement, but also for the radical feminist movement. I'm writing about people who very much felt betrayed, women, that is, who very much felt betrayed by what followed 
post-1973, they too thought that, you know, women were settling for a cultural definition of feminism. In other words, one that accepts the binary that the two and only two genders uh, intrinsically, innately, are different and therefore have somewhat different social roles to play. I mean, it raises all kinds of really very profound questions, like does it necessarily follow that any movement for social change at its inception is passionately utopian, and that that kind of intensity cannot maintain itself, especially, I suppose, in a society which is as innately conservative as I feel our society is. There have been outbursts throughout our history of, you know, passionate social reform and radical agendas, but they don't seem to last very long. We have no sustained left history in this country, uh, which stands in considerable contrast to the histories of many countries in Europe. Well, okay, so that's interesting because obviously much of your career has been dedicated to documenting that kind of left history that otherwise is kind of erased and eroded in U.S. history. So, you know, what do you see as the value of continually returning ourselves to those principles? The current hope, as I see it, for a return to a more radical agenda which pays attention to the needs of the vast majority of gay people who, in fact, are working class. I mean, your typical gay person, God help us, I have no idea what that means, but uh, (laughs) your typical gay person is, you know, there are something like 45 million Americans who are living on or near the poverty level. There was recently a book by Anne Belay uh, on gay steel workers. And these uh, workers who, in fact, hold down larger salaries than are typical for working-class employment. But even so, they're quite conservative. When I look at what is happening currently in terms of the resistance to Trumpism, I think that's where we can locate whatever grounds for hope still exist for an agenda that encompasses the needs of the large majority of people rather than the small privileged 1%. And I think a group like the Human Rights Campaign, which now and then will make a feint in the direction of working-class issues or racial issues. I don't get it in a real sense. I mean, they don't, to me, seem to be representing the needs of the majority of gay people, and yet they are enormously prosperous. So where's all this money coming from? Okay, so that was exactly the question that I was going to ask you, because... It's HRC, right? The kind of standard line in the 
quote unquote gay community that I'm a part of, right, is that it's like, well, it's hard to care about workers' rights when mostly what they spend their money on is expensive canapes at their expensive galas with celebrities and everybody else, mostly promoting a kind of vision of queer politics, well, they probably wouldn't even use that word. They would use the word gay or LGBT politics that is all about just, I'm just like you, right? And I do wonder if, in fact, it is their donor base, which is an incredible amount of support to them, I'm sure, but also probably comes from people that have different interests than the broad-based, you know, queer community. I think there's a real division. If we look at LGBT people who are university employed, I don't know quite how to put this without sounding offensive to some people, but there seems to me a real cleavage between gay intellectuals who are part of academia and the gay population in general. It's very hard to find people on the university level who don't scorn the human rights campaign and who don't have left-wing leanings. But what they are doing, I mean, queer theory, for example, you know, I mean, it's to the extent that your average gay person has even heard of it, they would scorn it as wholly irrelevant to their lives. And there are a number of gay academics who would scorn it as well. But beyond queer theory, I'm simply talking about bread and butter issues here. You know, a social network to sustain people when they fall on hard times, the kind of thing that the New Deal and the Great Society represented, but are certainly no longer with us. We're now about to face legislation in which for people to receive federal assistance, they have to work. I mean, it's it's laughable if it wasn't so sick. Yeah, I agree. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Martin Duberman, author of Has the Gay Movement Failed? We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have our own Eric Newman in the studio with us today. Eric is the gender and sexuality editor of the LA Review of Books. Eric, what book are you going to recommend? So this week I'm recommending Michael Bronsky's A Queer History of the United States. This was published a few years back. Uh, I want to say that it was in 2011, but it is relevant and incredibly interesting to read today. It's a an excellent book about basically how queerness, uh, you know, is kind of like a range of non-heterosexual desires, bodies, and identities, both shaped and was shaped by American history. He starts with the kind of first wave of European immigration to what would become the United States of America and then follows it all the way up through 1990. So kind of right before the not end of the AIDS crisis, but when the kind of retroviral drugs radically changed that situation in 1996. And it is just great. It's like a really interesting kind of similar to obviously it's borrowing its title from Howard Zinn's um, A People's History of the the United States. So it kind of walks through national history, but with a queer perspective, which is really interesting. Is there something that you picked up from this book that you didn't anticipate 
or that surprised you? Not really. And I don't mean that, in, <laughs> you know, because this is it's my area of focus. My interest in reading the book was just to see a kind of broad survey to see what kind of narratives people were telling about that period in queer history. So the book is not revelatory in that way for me, but I will say that for kind of regular readers or people who this isn't their the, living and, breathe, the <laughs> living and breathing part of their life, I think that they'll appreciate kind of not only the queer presence that Bronsky shows going all the way back to the kind of founding of the country and the kind of early colonial period, because I think that the the prejudice tends to be that people are like, oh, well, gay history is like Stonewall and after, right? Mm-hmm. And he shows that, in fact, there's this whole earlier um, period and the way that sexuality like was shaped by the Puritan society and all of that kind of stuff. But what I also think people will find fascinating, and which is the kind of work that I do a lot also, is showing how much race and sexuality were linked together both by moral crusaders and the state, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century, which is the thing that, again, when you focus on queer history is only kind of being like post-World War II, post-Stonewall and beyond, you kind of lose the historical texture of queer life. Or I think if you do think about queer history prior to that period, it's rarely American. So you can think of Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, the decadence. Um, But America somehow doesn't fit into that sort of pre-Stonewall queer past. Right, exactly. Or most people tend to be like, oh, right, I remember reading that one Walt Whitman poem. It was like about spraying (laughs) men or something. Yeah. So it's totally great for that. And yeah, I just think it's it's also Bronsky has, and this is an increasingly rarefied capacity, I think, is he's an academic, right? So he's a a professor in uh, Women, Gender, and Sexuality program at Harvard, but he writes in a way that is narrative and lucid and very much accessible for, like, any reader. It sounds great. Can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Mm -hmm. The title is A Queer History of the United States, and the author is Michael Bronsky. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Martin Duberman, author of Has the Gay Movement Failed? One of the things that comes up in the book along these sort of lines are the end of legislation, which I don't remember exactly when it was proposed and then killed. But I do remember at the time saying to everybody that would listen is that, like, this is what matters. Not every person and not every gay person or queer person is going to get married. But every single gay person or queer person has to have a job, has to have a place to live, has to have access to food and has to have access to health care. Right. So what happened that those kind of basic protections seem to be kind of shunted to the sidelines or easily killed. And then what we end up getting is gay marriage, which is a good achievement. I'm not anti that in terms of rights and protections, but it's not the rights and protections that in a broad speaking way we actually need. Well, I think you put it very well. There are a lot of people who have trouble putting food on the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're glad that, you know, that... You can't eat a marriage. Or at least not yet. <laughs> no, I'm going to block the thought that I had that goes along <laughs> with that. But anyway, yeah, I mean, as I started to say before, it's an astonishing number of Americans 
which means including many gay people, they are living, and this is for a family of four, they are living on or below the poverty line, which is currently roughly $24,000 a year Mm. for four people. And it's staggering. I mean, the kinds of figures that are emerging, for example, uh, this one is only vaguely true because I'm forgetting the exactness of the numbers, but something like, you know, the 10 wealthiest people in this country, their share of the gross national income is equal to something like 50% of the country. I mean, these kinds of statistics are constantly now being shared in the regular left-wing press. I mean, there's no disputing them. I mean, even in the New York Times, if you read Paul Krugman with any regularity, I mean, he's constantly talking about the fact that right now, a lot of Americans are suffering in terms of their basic needs, not only food, but medical care, education, job employment. I mean, it is shocking how badly so many Americans are living while the small percentage at the top continues to increase its share of the income. And you don't hear the human rights campaign talking about all that. Why is that, do you think, Martin? Is that just because it's easier to talk about abstract things like love rather than concrete things like food and money? I don't know whether it's easier or not. I know that it comfortably fits with what a certain kind of person in our society thinks is important. And to some degree, I feel sympathy for that, because the way I define it is, it represents a wish to be accepted. You know, life is short, life is hard. We not only want to get along with our neighbors, but Most of us want to feel comfortable around them, want to feel that, you know, we're accepted. I mean, I grew up probably in the worst possible decade for gay people. The 1950s is when I came to adulthood, and we internalized the fact that, being fed to us by the general culture, by the fact that we were less than. We were sometimes defined as criminal, We were sometimes defined as maladjusted. Something terrible had gone wrong in our upbringing. We were definitely second rate. We were incapable of intimate relationships, you know, on and on and on. And we internalized a lot of that. I mean, the damage done to my generation, as I can attest to personally, was profound and long-lasting. It doesn't disappear when a movement arises about gay pride. No, it really doesn't. I mean, people of my generation really do suffer long-term scarring from the way in which we were defined and treated back in the 1950s. And, of course, you know, outside of the cities today... Many of our people are still being treated that way. They're being thrown out of their homes. They're being told, you know, they have to go for a cure, which comes in various forms. 
So, you know, a lot of the homophobia that I experienced remains present in various pockets of the country. But hopefully there are liberated pockets as well. It's hard for me. I understand the reality of it in the larger world, but obviously I live in my own bubble in academia in Los Angeles, Santa Monica. I have very supportive family, friends, all that sort of thing. But one of the things that you bring up about halfway through the book is that actually this surge in acceptance, right? Oh, well, we feel like we belong. Gay people can get married. You see it more in media representation. And the media representation thing, I think, is a huge deal. It's a very... I'm obviously younger than you, but like to see people on TV that are gay and not traumatized or self-loathing, all those types of things was tremendously important. But you have marked the way in which a kind of surge in acceptance, quote unquote, in the present moment has also been conjoined with a parallel rise in hostility towards queer and especially trans people. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and whether or not maybe that's something indicative of what's happening on a larger cultural and political scale in the Trump era. You mean the contradiction between the acceptance of mainstream gays and the rejection of queer gays? Is that... Exactly. The contradiction there being specifically that, well, one part of the belief would be that if we get acceptance, lives will be better. But one thing that you're pointing out is that, like, well, we may have this kind of quote unquote acceptance, but also now we've had a parallel rise in violence. Yeah, we've also had a parallel rise in the amount of anti gay legislation, mm-hmm. too. If there's one example that's currently being introduced in state houses throughout the country. I mean, that's exactly part of the problem, if not the heart of the problem. Namely, that gay people who show their differentness and, you know, even exult in it, remain despised. You either have to pass muster, you know, as a mainstream middle-class, hard-working, devout American, or you remain under suspicion. And, you know, the amount of violence against trans people is horrendous. These people are widely denounced. They cannot find employment. They cannot find anything like general acceptance. So, I mean, that, I think, is my whole point. We really... I believe, uh, culturally, we have a lot to tell the mainstream about gender and sexuality, among other things, and also friendship and monogamy and so forth, and what a family is. But we're heading in the opposite direction. We're not asserting our differentness. We're not saying to the mainstream Look, you know, if you'd only opened your ears, you would hear a lot from us that might inform you, that might even get you to change some of your ways of thinking, and perhaps eventually even the patterns of your institutions. But we're not hearing that. We're hearing the opposite from the human rights campaign. We're hearing the old just folks argument. Do you think, Martin, that it's possible 
for the current Trump presidency and the Pence vice presidency, or God forbid, if there is a God forbid it, Pence presidency, can be a catalyst for a kind of renewed and vigorous and much more intersectional queer rights movement? I think so, and I hope so. God knows I hope so. And I think there's good reason to hope. It's the only reason to hope, and that is the resistance has been strong. And all the polls that I've seen show a very wide split between the current generation, people say in their 20s roughly, and older people. People in their 20s are much more open to, I mean, gayness to many of them, at least the ones that I come in contact with, which isn't a huge number, but uh, (laughs) they think, I mean, what's the big deal? So you're gay. So who cares? Yeah, we know you're different. You know, we know that you don't believe in monogamy. You prefer serial monogamy, if anything. But really, some of you just like sexual adventuring and intend to continue that way. The kind of acceptance that I see from people in their 20s or 30s, perhaps as well, certainly in their teens, (laughs) the kind of acceptance is not we accept you because you are like us, but rather we accept you understanding that in some ways, significant ways, you are different from us. If my reading is accurate, I mean, that's an enormous shift in public opinion. And if it holds, if the 20-somethings don't get conservative as they age, I think there's still some hope for significant social transformation. I believe and hold on to that as well. And then, Martin, my last question for you is about the vision of the new left that you kind of touch on towards the end of the book. What do you see as the most promising kind of aspects or trends in contemporary debates on the left? Like, if you were to point to a couple of issues or ideas or figures, who would you say is like, I really feel like that person can carry forward some of these ideals that I think we've forgotten? Well, I don't know that I can name individuals off the top, but you used, I think, what is the critical word before when you said intersectional. I think there's a widespread awareness now that wasn't there before, that none of us have single identities. We are not simply gay people or straight people or trans people. We also come from a variety of racial and ethnic backgrounds, are the economic class, and no matter how you define class, whether it's in terms of job status or higher education or income, there is an awareness that you must have all groups who feel different from and outside of the mainstream. You must have heightened unity because power is in numbers. I mean, if we're ever going to translate it into the ballot box, 
and into institutional changes, we are going to have to work together. Meaning somehow those whose prime identity is racial, those who feel that the most important thread in their identity is gender, those who feel their sexuality is prime, whatever we face, despite all of our differences, we do face, if you like, a common enemy. Yes. And that is things as they are. Because things as they are exclude the large majority of people in this country. And the scariest thing to me still is that what may interfere with an intersectional alliance is that old chestnut of American ideology, and that is you can get as far as you want in life and in any direction you care to go so long as you work hard because opportunities remain wide open. But, you know, you can't fritter away your time and energy. And that is and has always been nonsense. The myth that if you fail... You don't get a good job. You don't get an education, whatever. If you fail, there's only one explanation for it. You. You failed. It isn't that social obstacles prevented your advancement. No, it's that you didn't put your nose to the grindstone. And you have nobody to blame but yourself if you're suffering. And most Americans, I think, still have internalized that ideology. And it's poison. It's poison because people end up blaming themselves rather than blaming social conditions. So even if we succeed in forming an intersectional alliance, and certainly lots of people are aware now of its necessity, There is this other aspect of American culture which I think works against it and partially dilutes it. Namely, why do I need to spend time joining a group or demonstrating politically or activating myself in one way or the other? My progress through life depends wholly on me. It doesn't depend on anybody else. So why form alliances with them? So there is that, I think, contradiction that we've always lived with and we currently are living with again, and where it'll all end. I'm an optimist by nature, but it isn't easy always to maintain that feeling. Well, we're unfortunately going to have to end there, but I could talk to you all day, Martin. We've been speaking with Martin Duberman, author of Has the Gay Movement Failed? Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. 
Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 